Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started here. Good afternoon, everyone. Today we're going to pick up where we left off last time. Session six, question number four. But first, we have to sing our hymn. Pastor, would you get us started with our hymn? then with question number four in session six. So Hebrews 9, 1 through 10. Now we have the first covenant of regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. The tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the curtain was a second section. Yeah, 
been talking about this first covenant, the old covenant, and all the things that go into that in the holy place and the holy of holies, the most holy place. So picking up then with question number four, only the high priest was allowed to enter the inner room of the tabernacle, and he only once a year. What did he bring into this room with him? Blood. <clears throat> what kind of blood? Animal blood from the sacrifices, right? And then what was the purpose of this blood? What did it do? Right. And what exactly did he do with this blood? Where did he pour it? Right, right on top of the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. So right between where the presence of God was and where the mercy seat was over the Ten Commandments and everything that was in the Ark of the Covenant. Would somebody look up Leviticus 16, 15 through 16 for us? You've got it? Then he shall kill the goat the sin offering that is for the people and bring it, its blood inside the veil and do, do with its blood as he did with blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall take, make atonement for the holy place because, he, because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgression, all their sins, and so he shall do part for the tent of the meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of the unclean. Okay, thank you. So again, this is a little bit of review, but the, mo the high priest would take that blood in, sprinkle it on the mercy seat, make atonement for the sins of the people as well as for himself. And this would happen once a year. Question number five. What did these restrictions concerning the inner room of the tabernacle reveal about the old covenant? Well, the priest would go in there to the, to the mercy seat. 
right? The priest is the only one. So what does that mean for everyone else? Right, they kind of rely on this high priest to do his work. What would prevent the people from going into the most holy place? Well, there's a physical barrier, right? What else? Death. Death? Death? How do you mean? Well, if they were in there Right, and because, okay, so what about them would cause them to die? God. God. And God's perfect holiness compared to the sin that they would bring into his presence. So before the high priest even would be able to go into the most holy places, he had to sacrifice for his own sins. He had to be purified, and only then would he be the only one allowed to go into the most holy places without being just instantly dropped dead by God. So these restrictions reveal to us that sin, while it was atoned for, by this blood being sprinkled, by the sacrifices, this, this sin still prevented people from entering into the presence of God. When did that change? Right. When Christ died on the cross, his sacrifice being the once-for-all sacrifice by which now Jesus has become the temple, the true temple. We don't need a physical temple anymore in Jerusalem on a hill where we sacrifice animals. We can go directly to the Father through Christ. And it is his blood that washes away all of our guilt and all of our sin and shame and that allows us to have direct access to God the Father, we don't need a Levite high priest to do it for us once a year. We can approach our Heavenly Father at any time in prayer. Question number six. Why is it important to know that you need no human mediator but may approach the Lord directly in your worship and prayer. Well, there isn't a temple or a tabernacle now, so there wouldn't be under that old covenant, there wouldn't be a way of approaching the Lord. Right, right. If there is no physical temple, no physical tabernacle, um, under the Old Covenant, you're just kind of in trouble. You're in a bad way. But now, because of Christ, we actually don't need that physical temple, that physical tabernacle. We have Jesus Christ himself. We don't have to schedule anything. Right. Or go by somebody else's schedule. Correct.
Correct. It's not a once a year kind of a thing. So because we are able to approach our Heavenly Father, it means that we have been washed clean. Right? We have been made acceptable to God, our Heavenly Father, through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we can approach God at any time. So, so is that why the priest had to, to be, be bathed and stuff before he went into that? Is that to kind of remind you that of that? Yes, he had to be made ceremonially clean through all of the things which God prescribed for the high priest. And then if he didn't, if he did something wrong or was there and he had sin, when he entered into the most holy places, he would just drop dead. Which is kind of unnerving, if you think about it. They would have had to use the rope. Right, they would have had to use the rope tied to his leg and haul him on out of there. And then it would be the next high priest's turn. But thankfully we have our Lord Jesus Christ who takes away our sin. And we don't have to worry about dropping dead necessarily any time we enter into our own sanctuary. Okay, any final questions on this little section here, 1 through 10? Right, right. I mean, we have to, we still are believers in Christ. And to have, to have access to God the Father, this is through faith. This is through belief in Jesus Christ. Um, unbelievers can pray all they want and think that they have access to God the Father, but the Lord promises to hear the prayers of his children, those who believe in Christ, who have been given this gift of faith. Okay, let's read 11 through 22 then. Where did we leave off? With Lynn? Okay, 9, 11. Yes. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. Is that what you wanted? Yes. Okay. He did not enter by means of blood or of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more than the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Therefore, He is a mediator of a new covenant, 
so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Well, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a testament is of force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, <clears throat> and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Question number seven. Christ, as high priest, entered the perfect heavenly tabernacle. What did he bring into this tabernacle with him? His own blood. His own blood. Okay. And how is his blood better or different? Right? And how is that? I mean, isn't he just another, you know, blood is blood, right? It all looks red. It all looks the same. How is his different? Perfect. Perfect? Okay. Right? Sent by God. Um, he, Jesus is both God and man as well. So the blood of God himself is being spilled. Infinitely more valuable than the blood of any sheep or goat or bull. How does the sacrifice of Christ compare with those of the Levitical priests in terms of their cleansing power? Okay, Christ's was once for all, as opposed to every. Every time the priest went in, if it was the once-a-year deal or the sacrifices that were happening every single day, the sacrifices that were happening during important festivals, they constantly, continually needed to be sacrificing to cover the sins of the people. But with Christ's sacrifice, it is once for all, and it covers all people for all time. And this is the main, this is the main difference. Christ's death is called a ransom in verse 15. Look up the definition of ransom in a dictionary and write up a statement that explains how his death is a ransom. Who even has a dictionary anymore? <laughs> okay. It's the case. Mine says the promise of eternal inheritance 
It doesn't have ransom. Okay. Is that? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Yeah, the ESV doesn't have. This is KJV. KJV, right? The ESV doesn't have ransom either. For Joel too. Huh? For Joel too. No, my this is one that Ted gave me. So. <laughs> Does anyone's translation have ransom? Yes. Okay. NIV. NIV does. Okay. And just so you know, Victor, these were all written with NIV. With NIV in mind? Okay. All right, so for some people's translations, it has ransom. So have we looked up a, di a dictionary definition, yeah, Nick? Yeah, I have that one. Um, three definitions. Okay. First one is money demanded for the return of a captured person. Second, exchange for buyback for money under threat. Payment for release of someone. Okay, let's go with that third definition. <laughs> We're not dealing with kidnappings here, per se. And then the Well, that one's good as well. So, how is Christ's death a ransom? It's pain. It's a time for our sin. Okay. And what is our condition before that happens? I mean, we're not kidnapped necessarily. Slaves to what? To sin. Slaves to sin and death, our own sinful desires, our own sinful flesh. We are in captivity. Right. And the price that he needed to pay was with his own life, by the spilling of his own blood. So Christ's death is a ransom for many. Now, in... When we encounter this ransom word nowadays, usually what is it on, like a crime show or something? Somebody gets kidnapped, and then the parents get a phone call from a stranger with a voice changer, and then it's, you have to pay a certain amount of money, send it here, make it out to this account, leave it in a bag somewhere in a park, then there's going to be this exchange, and you'll get your loved one back. Sounds like you know a lot about that. <laughs> no comment. I, I plead the fifth. Um, so, how is that sort of idea different with um, Jesus and his sacrifice and God the Father? Right? So, the example being, you know, your loved one is taken from you by the kidnappers, and then you have to pay a ransom to get them back. How are we different in that way? What was, what was our 
position relative to God. Where we, we don't have to pay anything. Right. We, we don't pay anything. And what I'm trying to get at is, were we friends or enemies with God? Enemies. enemies with God. And yet he still paid this ransom. You know, while we were still unholy and unrighteous, wicked in every way, the Lord loved us so as to send his son to pay the price. To be the ransom. Okay, question number 10. Look carefully at verses 16 through 22. Why was Jesus' death necessary for the establishment of a new covenant? So let's just, would someone go ahead and reread those verses, 16 through 22, altogether? For where will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For will takes effect only at death, since it is not a force to be forced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For then every command of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people. He took, all, took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Okay, so why was Jesus' death necessary? For the establishment of a new covenant. Okay, no blood, no forgiveness. Um, I don't think that's quite what they're going for here. When you establish a covenant, what needs to happen? Right, well, and then... Specifically with a will. Someone, yeah, someone needs to die. Some animals died before Christ. Right, a lot of animals died before Christ, and now Christ is the one who dies. And now, the new covenant is established through Christ's death. The old covenant required the death of animals, the new one required the once-for-all death, the death of Christ. Which is good news for us, because we don't have enough sheep or goats or pigeons for all of us to sacrifice all the time for all of our sins. Letter B. Why was Jesus' death necessary for the forgiveness of sins? We need to look at verses 21 and 22, Leviticus 17.11, and Romans 6.23. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood before the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. 
and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Okay. And would someone read the Leviticus passage when you get it? Yes. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I exhibited it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And Romans six twenty-three. <clears throat> So why was Jesus' death necessary for the forgiveness of sins? His death was given in place of ours. Mm-hmm. Ours was required because of our sin. Right. And if you're going to have this forgiveness of sins, if sins are going to be covered in the sight of God, what needs to happen? Repentance? Oh, there, there's an idea. So it can't be something that a human or an animal can do, but something that only God can do? Um, just in general. Just in general. And let's go all the way back to Adam and Eve. When they first fell into sin and then realized that they were naked, what did God do to cover, physically cover them? He killed an animal so they could have skin. Right, he killed an animal. He spilled blood. God spilled blood so that he could cover them. This same idea is carried throughout Scripture. Something needs to die. Blood needs to be spilled in order for there to be a covering. So under the Old Covenant, the blood that was spilled was just an awful lot of bulls and goats and pigeons. But now we have Christ. And his blood covers every sin. And it's necessary for the forgiveness of sins because if blood is not spilled there can be no forgiveness of sins. Something has to die. Something or someone. And for us, it's Christ. And I think this is just recap at this point, but Christ's blood is sufficient because he is perfect and holy and blameless, the one true lamb without spot or blemish. His blood alone is able to cover the sins of everyone. Okay, any questions on this little section? Okay, let's go ahead and read 
Hebrews 9, 23 through 28. And I think we're at the beginning again. Um, Hebrews 9, 23 through 28. Thus it was necessary for the, the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly Thank you. Okay, we have in front of us now another challenge question. I think we've had one or two of these before. So, the writer refers to copies or shadows and the realities they represent or reflect. Work through the grid below, filling in the blanks. I remember we talked about this some weeks ago, this idea, the word we used was types. So in the Old Testament, we have types that point forward to things that Christ is going to do, that Christ is going to fulfill or Christ will institute. So the copies or shadows for letter A, Levitical priests, what is the reality we have now in Christ? Whereas once we had Levitical priests, what do we have now? Christ. Christ is our new. Right. Christ is our one true high priest. And he does all of the functions of the high priest more perfectly than the high priest could ever do them. And he himself is blameless. And then we talked at length as to why Christ is the better priest. Okay, letter B. Now we have the new covenant. What did we have then? What did we have before? The law. The law or the old covenant. Now could you... Could you be saved by the law? No. What did the law do? It showed us our sin and just how bad we are at keeping the law and our need for a Savior. Letter C. We, have, we had the earthly tabernacle or the temple where the presence of God was located. What do we have today? We have 
the true tabernacle? Um, communion? Maybe. I mean, that. Right. We have. We have the presence of Christ wherever we are gathered. It's not fixed in one physical tabernacle location overseas in the Middle East. We have a heavenly tabernacle where Christ is, and Christ is with us. All right, letter D. Under the Old Covenant, we had animal sacrifices. What do we have now? Right. Well, I thought these were supposed to be challenge questions. <laughs> right, so the animal sacrifices were a foreshadowing of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice that would cover the sins of everyone. Okay, number 12. Letter A. Some religions teach reincarnation. The idea that after death, a person's soul is reborn into another body. How does Hebrews 9.27 speak to this belief? Would someone read verse 27 for us? Just as I am destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. Okay, so what does this have to do with reincarnation? So when you die, your soul doesn't go live in some other sort of being? Because you die once, not multiple times. Have you encountered Christians that believe in reincarnation before? Not Christians? What about just other, other people in your lives who believe in reincarnation? Have we encountered this one? Yeah? Okay. Do Huh. Is that moving up or down in the world? <laughs> so I believe this teaching of reincarnation comes from the Eastern religion of Hinduism. And you're right. And so it's all about the karma system, right? And whether or not new, a lot of New Age stuff that Christians need to be wary of because it's very much in our culture. A lot of Eastern thought is coming in, and we see all these sort of new beliefs. Whether it's reincarnation or being joined when you die, your soul goes to be with other universal energies that are just kind of floating around. These things are prevalent. Like Yoga too. Yoga too. That's a good question. Um, would you like to be a little more specific? 
I didn't go, but they uh-huh. had yoga, something welcome the sunrise for the summer solstice, and they were talking about their flow and all of this. Okay. So I think this is an important topic. Pastor, I'm going to do my best. Okay. So yoga, the word yoga itself means yoked, right? And the question is, what are you yoked to as you practice yoga? And the answer is, you're yoked to the universe and its energies. So, those who practice Hinduism, like a necessary part of practicing Hinduism is yoga. It would be like us saying, as Christians, right, in order to be Christians, we need God's word and his sacraments. For the the Hindu, yoga is like one of their sacraments. It's just, you're practicing Hinduism, you're necessarily doing yoga. So in that way, the way a Hindu looks at yoga, physically doing it yourself is part of the religion, like the practice and worship of the Hindu gods. So the question that we face in the United States is, well, can we divorce yoga from this religion? Now, people in Hinduism would say you can't. Um, With Christians, it's a little more complicated. The problem, well, okay, so one argument you'll hear is that, well, it's just the movements and it's just the exercises. If you're not doing the Eastern meditation, if you're not saying the, the words that they're saying, if you're not doing the chants that they're saying, you can kind of secularize yoga and just do the stretches. And they would say that that could be okay. I would say as Christians we need to have a little more discernment than that. Something to understand is that there's different types of yoga. You can think of it as like denominations of yoga practice. And some are far more dangerous than others. All of them being dangerous because it's wrapped up in pagan worship practices. So like the worst form of yoga that anyone could do, I think is called like kundalini yoga. And the way you picture it as you're practicing yoga, as you're sitting there meditating, you're imagining your chakras, what they would say is like little portals for energy to pass through your body. They believe in these universal energies passing through your body, aligning up your chakras so you have this good flow of energy and you're envisioning a serpent slithering up your spine and aligning those chakras and you're um, achieving an enlightened state that they would call moksha, which is like being at one with the universe. And now people who practice this form of yoga I mean, the church has found instances of demon possession. People who practice it often have contact with 
entities and see things. Um, there's medical cases where the medical community doesn't know what to do and the Christian looks at the symptoms of this person who's practiced this kind of yoga and it looks like demon oppression. I mean, it's just horrible, really bad stuff that you don't want to get involved with. Okay, well that's just the one kind of yoga. What about the main kind of yoga that we see in the United States? I believe this one is called Hatha Yoga. And people who practice it would say, well, it's mostly just the movements, right? I mean, it's not all of this meditation. There's not the chakras aligning and the snake slithering up your spine. It's just stretches, right? Again, the names of the stretches themselves and the movements that you do are given names based on the Hindu gods. So a certain stretch is going to be a greeting to the sun god or a greeting to the moon god. And these have been, I mean, it would be like, it would be like a Christian pulling out a prayer rug, pointing it east, doing everything that a Muslim would do to pray towards Mecca, and then saying, well, I've just kind of Christianized it. I mean, maybe, but no, not quite. So I don't know if I can authoritatively stand up here and say every practice of yoga is necessarily sinful, but I do caution Christians away from yoga. It's I have some excellent resources if you would like to read further into this, if you want to talk to me after class. It's been well researched and there's there is good Christians who have wrote on this subject. And my encouragement is to just avoid yoga. You really you can't divorce it from its pagan worship practice. So what about Tai Chi? Tai Chi, I'm not too familiar with. It's exercises. That's exercises too. Okay. I, I can't comment on Tai Chi. Okay. I've seen Tai Chi offered at churches. I've seen yoga offered at churches as well. And people will try to Christianize it. So you're doing the same moves and motions that have been associated with pagan worship for thousands of years. And then you're just trying to purify it that way by just tacking Jesus' name onto it. I don't know that it's wise. I, I just don't know. This lady that um, provided this little thing out where I live for any woman in the community that wanted to come. She always used to sign her emails or, or texts that went out to the whole little neighborhood in light. And I asked her one time, I said, why do you say that? You know, she would have said for the light of Christ or something, but she always just said in light. Well, she talked a mile a minute about why, but I did catch that she does the yoga, she chants to the goddess Durga, and 
Bible, she is a Lutheran. And I said, I bet you're not this very sick. And she said, no, but she didn't tell me where. Right. And she's, yeah, okay. Yeah. So yes, this, this yoga question is important because it's, it's so popular. And you can find it in pretty much every gym. I mean, it's just everywhere. And it looks innocent. It does. Just like the tarot cards. Sure, right. I, and just, I had a niece that did that, and I said, you have to be very, very careful with something like that. You are messing with demonic powers and influences that you do not understand. I did it once in Loma Linda, California, and it was on the TV. I had a, one of those video VHSs, mm -hmm. so I did along with that. And it was very helpful in keeping me from becoming, it's, you know, the stretches were good. But after about a week of that, I found that the air filter had started going out white dust and I could no longer tolerate whatever was on, in the carpet. You were talking about demonic forces, so. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of unexplained things that people have reported when practicing yoga. You are interfacing. See, here's the thing that sometimes is harder for us to understand as post-enlightenment Western civilization Christians. Is that all of these false religions in the world are actually linked to demons and Satan, right? Do you want to participate in that? No. No. Avoid it. Avoid it. Okay, good, good question on yoga. That was... Yeah, okay. I can, okay. I can do my best. That's okay. <laughs> it's an Easter. You see, though, people out, like over the pond over by the landing. I've seen people out there doing all these moves. Uh -huh. I don't, yeah, and I think it's Tai Chi. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know what that's supposed to do. And I've done, I have taken some Tai Chi all as the stretches. I never thought of any thing with yoga or tai chi or anything. Right, and then, I mean, this is a good point. Is it a sin to stretch? No. Is it a sin to sit there calmly and breathe in and breathe out? No. But again, you don't need yoga to stretch. You don't need necessarily Tai Chi to stretch. Um, there actually are plenty of just secular stretching exercise routines that you can do that don't have all of the pagan worship imported into it, where you're just kind of playing with fire. So that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> But good, good question. There's a lot of 
Eastern influences on our culture that oftentimes we just kind of dismiss or overlook. Sure. So reincarnation, is that, what, what would you say if you, if you, and, and it wasn't only you that saw these people running up the steps, but there were children that also saw something running up the steps that disappeared into thin air. People. I'm not sure exactly what you're referencing with the running up the well, stairs. Just reincarnation. I mean, can can how how do you explain that? And and you're talking about demons and reincarnation, and I'm just I would like to maybe get an answer. Sure. Okay. So reincarnation is the belief that when a human dies, your soul or your essence, in the, or your energies in the Eastern religion, gets transferred to another living being that's reborn. So, a person who believes in reincarnation would say, well, in a previous life, I was a frog, or in a previous life, I was a witch doctor, or in a previous life, I was an explorer on the high seas, or something like that. And so, how you live in your life under this karma system. If you're a really good person, when you're reincarnated, you'll go into a higher being. If you're a bad person, you might be reincarnated as like a mouse or like a squirrel or something, a lower, a lower being. Not very exciting. So, what do the Christians believe happens when you die? Your soul is separated from your body for a time. It goes to be with Jesus in heaven. On the last day, Christ will return, and your body will be raised and rejoined with your soul, never to be separated again, and you will live in perfect bliss and righteousness with your Lord for all eternity. Now, what do we do when we hear strange reports, people disappearing into thin air, reports of ghosts or other worldly activities, things that we can't explain with our rational minds and reason and science and logic when we actually encounter frightful things that we just can't explain. It, it has to be the work of demons for the purpose of destroying faith, causing confusion, leading astray, taking our focus off of Christ and what he has done for us and putting it on something else. And now these things might even be miraculous and might even be a source of joy, something. You know, a demon does something that looks good and appealing. But again, it's the focus is to pull you away from Christ and on to whatever that thing is. And then that's the great spiritual danger in all of this, is that our focus would be taken from Christ and put on to something that we can't explain, something miraculous. And so the devil is all too keen to do that sort of thing. Does that help? Okay. Pastor.
Vicar, if someone has issues in their house that they can't explain, what might they do? Good question. Good question. So, right, so here's the thing. Again, because we live in a post-enlightenment, rationalistic world, especially in the United States. The devil knows this, right? So it's less likely that the devil is going to do things like start levitating pots and pans, or in other ways afflicting us in the Western world, because we've been conditioned by media and TV and movies. When this happens, what do we do? Well, we go get a priest. We go to the church, and the church sorts it out. So the devil is very careful about using those kinds of attacks against Christians, but they still do happen. So if you notice things that are just, you can't explain in your house. Things move, things disappear, there's all of a sudden intense coldness, or you, it just feels evil. I mean, these are all things that people have described to their pastors in the past, and this information has been collected and documented by the church in the past. If you experience any sort of thing like that, go talk to your pastor. And then your pastor will work through a series of steps that should happen. Well, we need to make sure that first no one's pulling a practical joke on you. You know, if, if things are disappearing and moving around, there might be a rational explanation for it. And if there's not, then your pastor is more than happy to just come to your house and do a house blessing. And there's a right for it in our agenda. And you go from room to room and you read different scriptures and you pray prayers because where Christ is, that demon has to get out. He cannot stand it. He has to get out of the presence of Christ. And so if you notice these kinds of things, things you just can't explain, weird stuff happening in your house, beyond the normal things like your printer not working or technology otherwise failing, but other just inexplainable weird things, talk to your pastor. Talk to your pastor. He's more than happy to work through that with you and do a house blessing. And... These house blessings, they used to be a lot more common than what they are now. But anytime you move, anytime you enter a new place of living, call your pastor. Have him say the prayers and do the right that's in the agenda. It's, it's just helpful. Pastor? If someone wanted to see what a house blessing was and get some exercise afterwards, where might they go? Hmm... You might want to go to Pastor-Elect Goodroad's move-in event Tuesday at 5 p.m. Is this where I should be going, Pastor? That's right. <laughs> so the plan is to do a house blessing. The plan is to do a house blessing first. Okay. And that would be a perfect opportunity to see one in the flesh. We moved into our house in Lincoln. Built a house while we were in North Dakota, and we 
And that's a lot more common when yeah. the church receives new vestments or paraments or new things like that. We have a right to bless it, to dedicate it to the Lord. But we also have this for our homes. And we often just overlook it. Yes. Exorcism. Yes. Person on most of the things that I've read about are like the whole. Okay, okay. So, yeah, in, in a way, we could look at a, a home blessing as an exorcism. We might not know for sure if there's actually a demon residing in, in that place, but within the Lutheran Church, we really don't talk about it too much, but yeah, we. We do exercise demons, right? And that's nothing more than proclaiming the gospel in the presence of this demon. And he can't stand it, so he has to leave. Question. Baptism is an exorcism, I think, because mm -hmm. we say, I renounce the devil, I renounce right. all those things. And I think that's an exorcism. Yes, yes. Right? Yep, we would say that, absolutely. And in the old... Um, in the old Lutheran rite, we would say, depart, O unclean spirit, make room for the Holy Spirit. Now, is that to say that your little baby there is demon-possessed? No, but he's in the kingdom of Satan. So, depart, O unclean spirit, make room for the Holy Spirit. This child is marked by God and will carry his name and will be washed in the waters of holy baptism. Pastor, when did we when did we get rid of it? I think it got lost in the translation time period from German into English. Because when we did that, we uh, borrowed a lot of things from the Anglicans who already had an established English liturgy. Um, in the agenda, there is a it's not in the hymnal, but in the pastor hymnal, there is a rite for baptism that matches more closely that deadline, which was originally written by Martin Luther um, back in the Pastor? I had to ask. Okay. When you exercise demons, do you make them feel better? <laughs> 
No, not quite. <laughs> Good question, though. I can see how you could get confused. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and close out today with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation.